Welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And this is the last one we're going to do before Christmas. Probably not going to hit this until uh, sometime in January where we're all bored because we don't have any money to do anything because we're paying off bills from Christmas. So this will kind of have to hold us for a while. Uh, I think I said it, episode one, two, three. And if you have any questions or comments, and I love the comments, I like getting the emails too. So I love comments, I love emails. So you can um, email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com, and that is kbmakel at aol.com, or leave them at, on the Podbean comments section. And uh, I'll be sure to get them, look at it. And uh, the nice part about emailing me is I can email you back with some, you know, immediate feedback, and you don't have to wait till the next podcast when I'll when I'll talk about it. So anyway, let's get down to it. You know, for the last couple of podcasts, I've talked about I've talked about the Baldwin defense, where little Baldwiner has been trying to lie his way out of this really horrific situation that he caused on some level and participated in and everything else the accidental killing of his cinematographer on some cheap low budget western he was making probably something that you'd see on Netflix or Prime you know directly to streaming service or direct to DVD you know and then you <laughs> then you find, then you'll buy it in Walmart with like Hey, here's 12 Alec Baldwin movies, and this will this will be on the the single disc that's got 12 of his uh, um, crummy movies on it. So anyway, uh, you notice the prosecutors or the investigators, I should say, uh, wanted to see his telephone to see if there was any evidence on it. And of course, Baldwin, and, and he's all lawyered up now. You know, I mean, personally, he's lawyered up. I'm sure his company's lawyered up. They said. Yeah, we've got the telephone, but you'll need a warrant to come get it. And so they they procured the warrant, went and got it. And then, you know, the, the, the end of the article was, and, and, you know, Mr. Baldwin and his attorneys are cooperating with the police. I don't know if that's what I would call cooperation, but anyway, um, it just goes to show you that the Baldwin defense is somehow unraveling. And I'm actually amazed it's taking this long. It's... You know, it's a deal where everybody's pointing in another direction, saying, hey, it wasn't my fault. I didn't do that. I did this. I did that. And and when it comes down to Baldwin, the man who fired the shot, uh, it's, well, the guns are bad and guns don't work. And, you know, I'm sure it's going to be, this is an old design, you know, definitely wouldn't be made today except for nostalgia purposes. Doesn't pass the kind of modern safety things we need. But the humorous part was even, I think it was Newsweek.com, and everybody said, hey, if, if Baldwin's people on his movie set, and he himself, of course, had taken some NRA safety courses and had some NRA safety people there, this never would have happened. And uh, I think it's funny that, that, you know, the NRA, which gets vilified and excoriated through the liberal media, you know, the liberal media liars, it's a convenient target every time something happens. But even they have to admit, the NRA knows its stuff when it comes to safety. They know their stuff. They got it They got it down cold. And they reinforce it. They train it. They know it. Um, and I'm an NRA uh, range safety 
officer RSO and uh, you know it's very true it's very true they they do a very very good job of all that as as do all the other organizations that offer some sort of a range uh, safety officer um, briefing or training if you will I've done USPSA NRA and I'm looking forward I, I might do CMP you can actually do almost all of it the level one anyway and, and become you know the most basic uh, the buck private of RSOs for the CMP but you can do that I think it's like 75 bucks you can do it online so that might be something I do during the winter depending on how bad the, the weather is or how good the weather is who knows oh okay I want to talk to you we had a listener named John uh, short for Jonathan and uh, he, he gave me a very long uh, nice email where he praised the podcast said nice things and uh, we're certainly glad he enjoys it and we're certainly glad everyone else who listens we hope they enjoy it also but uh, he had a couple of things one uh, he asked some questions about a Lee Enfield which won't really delve into here it's it's the usual thing of of you know how well do these rifles really shoot and what's the appropriate type of ammunition and things and uh, you know those are those are excellent questions and I think I'm going to punt on that I sent him a reply but I think I'm going to punt on that and maybe use that as a as a topic in a later podcast because um, I want to organize my thoughts a little bit better that's not something I just want to speak you know kind of uh, just off the top of my head on I'd, I'd rather organize some thoughts and give some people you know information that they can use that's structured but the other question uh, the other the other comment he had uh, was about the Ruger Wrangler Heritage Rough Rider uh, I'm not a real big fan of the when it came to the two I chose the Ruger it, it just is a better fit it's a very safe gun very nice gun seems to be well made I, I had some reservations about the Heritage Rough Rider but he, he actually brought to me something that I'd thought about but had never mentioned, and that is he uses a Heritage Rough Rider on his trap line. And if you know about trap lines, and my li- limited amount, I've never run a trap line, but I've been around people who've trapped, so I kind of know what they do. But I'm not an expert in it. I'm, I'm more of a, a person who's seen it a little bit. The people who actually do it are the experts. But they do a lot of close range shots. The animals in the trap, they come up, they put it out of its, you know, out of its misery. They and then they they do their their thing with it, um, you know. And that requires a gun that's going to be carried a lot. It's going to go through some very very difficult conditions. Even if it's in a full flap holster and things, you know, it's it's a very taxing environment for a gun. It's not something that you would go out and buy, say, a 1985 vintage Colt Python for $3,000 and carry it on your trap line. You, you just don't do that. Um, number one, you don't need that much centerfire power most of the time. And the, the other thing is, you know, you don't make that kind of investment in a utilitarian gun. And, you know, what, what is a utilitarian gun? I would say the first group of guns that, that we all think about, and especially when you, if you're listening to old school guns, you think about curio relics, historically important pieces. You know, it's uh, guns that, that have been there and done that. The original 1911 that was in World War One that was made in 1918 or 1915 or something. Model 1917 revolvers, all of the early Colt, Smith & Wesson, Winchester, 
uh, Remington, the, the, the Savage Automatic, the Savage 1907 to throw out a kind of a one that doesn't get mentioned very often. You know, you think a lot of these guns, and then you think of the World War II era and all the wonderful guns in there. M1 rifles and Mausers and um, Arasakas and Enfields and all these great, you know, and, and it goes down to Carcanos. And, and you could you could literally have a list, um, probably 20 minutes long, 20 minutes long of the different guns and then the handguns. So we think about those kind of guns. We think about the gun grandfather brought back from the war. And you, you think about the 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 attachment and how he came across it whether he traded whether he traded something for it or whether he captured it uh from a surrendering enemy you know it, it, all those guns kind of have a lot of them have family stories and you know so those are the guns that are you know they're really relics they have that value and now they have respectable collector value because they haven't been made since 1945 or 1918 or or some other date in history. They they stopped making them, and the only ones that are out there are out there. And uh, so, therefore, as demand increases, the supply stays the same or dwindles because people have them in their collections already. Um, price goes up, so they have this, you know, collectible value that's there. And that's not to mention guns that were owned by famous people and, and all that. So there's there's always the collector market of guns. Those guns you're, you're not going to see out on a trap line or hanging off a tractor or, or something else. You're just not going to. They just, they're worth too much. So they're, they're kind of preserved and they, they kind of move around in their own circle among people who, who want them for the same, same reasons. The next are sentimental guns. Um, it may be just a family piece and and those can be any kind of gun they can, I, I know one guy who spent a lot of money uh restoring a single shot of a post-world war ii single shot winchester 22 rifle because it was his grandfather's and it was the only firearm that his grandfather really owned or used and you know showed his his father and then later his own his grandchildren had to shoot with it so it, it had a tremendous amount of family sentimental value and you know family sentimental i've got my father's deer rifles you know i mean you're not going to take those out and just abuse them normally you you would just you keep them as sentimental objects and you hope that you can pass them to someone else who will have the same sentimental attachment so there's the collector firearms the sentimental firearms um I'm not really going to cover duty and issue firearms because that's a whole different thing. But then there's another category, and this is what John brought up, which is there are guns that you just need for a purpose. And uh, I I was thinking about this before I even got his email. I was I was in a Walmart in a very rural place, and I saw what looks like a kind of a Marlin Glenfield 22 semi-automatic. I don't even know who made it. Or it's, I'm sure it's some sort of copy or something, um, and it was $116, and I'm like, you know, that's not a bad price for a 22 automatic. I I don't know how reliable it is. I don't know anything about it other than it looks kind of like the old Glenfield with a, um, you know, a plastic stock. And I'd seen an earlier, a couple months earlier, I was down in Shields, um, near where I live, and uh, they had a Ruger 10-22 in a plastic stock. And it was like two hundred and twenty dollars, I think. And uh, they also had this weird ten twenty two that was in like an M one carbine stock that they made. It doesn't really look like an M one carbine. It looks just kind of weird. But I guess people kind of want that, so they would do it. I I don't know that I would 
buy that one but you know because they actually do make kind of uh who's a chiapa i think has made an m1 carbine in really it looks looks just like an m1 carbine with uh in 22 long rifles so i'd probably opt for one of those but getting back to the point hey if i'm i'm thinking about buying a small tractor or some sort of a small farm vehicle um you know the gun i i don't really want to put an expensive or a sentimentally important 22 in that uh vehicle because it's it's gonna roll around it's gonna bang around even even though i will do my best to put it to protect it face it it's gonna get some some use it's gonna get some hard use and uh, it's probably going to get covered with dust. It's probably going to get covered with, you know, exposed, maybe some of the elements, you know, all those kind of things that can happen. And that's when, you know, the Heritage 22 is going to shine. The other thing I forget, failed to mention about the Heritage 22 is you can also get some 22 Magnum options if that really floats your boat. That's, you know, something you might find useful. But those kind of guns are utilitarian guns and they could become sentimental i suppose if your grandchild always remembers you carrying that gun when you're long gone and and he inherits it he might say hey this is a treasure to me i remember grandfather carrying this gun much like my friend with the 22 single shot you know so they could become sentimental but for right now these guns are inexpensive and they're utilitarian and uh, we've all kind of seen this i in in another place we actually had a uh, a steer butchered and of course the the guy who comes out and does all that you know he also he also basically puts the animal down and the, <laughs> i remember the rifle he had i don't even know what the make was because the thing was covered with rust it it, it, it you know it was actually kind of sad it had received no um maintenance or anything they just you know, it was a rifle that was just kept in the van where they kept all the tools where they, after they put the animal down, they, of course, you know, they they field dress it. They take all the innards out and then they cut it all up into pieces and whatever it all is, however they handle that carcass, they handle the carcass. And this gun stays in the truck and it, it, it was rusty and it functioned and it was only a 22. It was like a, it was some sort of 22 bolt action. I assume an older Remington or something, but anyway those those guns are utilitarian and uh, uh maybe they will become sentimental at some point but right now their only use their only value is for them to actuate a cartridge deliver it on target and uh um you know the other attribute people like is that they're very low cost um you don't you don't do that with a very you wouldn't you wouldn't buy the colt 22 diamondback for 2500 bucks that's not being made anymore hasn't been made in 30 or 40 years and take that out on your trap line or hang it from the uh uh steering wheel of your tractor or the the roll bar of your tractor you you just don't do that so there are these great firearms that are out there that are just designed to be used um, much the same way as you know some of the lower end ar-15s not fancy no frills but they function they work and you can carry them around and and uh you know you're not carrying around three thousand dollar rifle you're carrying around a five hundred dollar rifle and therefore it's it's not going to uh it's not going to keep you up at night if it if it gets dinged or brought around but that was a very interesting email and comment and i appreciate that because you know there is that always that category 
of guns that just get they're just there because they do what they're designed to do which is what all guns original intent was anyway so anyhow that's the the thing uh, we've talked about this before but i noticed that it, it, it's always funny to me that the wonder nine polymer framers and you know they're they're nice guns in in many ways but now there's a trend that these manufacturers are bringing out steel framed versions or at least metal framed versions of their polymer guns um the thing i kind of wonder about is number one why would you do this well obviously they think there's an advantage and i think that advantage lies in competition because it's really kind of competition models you're seeing it in and it's probably durability reliability plus a little bit of extra weight to to negate some of the recoil energy um i think another reason they <laughs> they do it is because they know the gun buying public on some level sees value in a metal frame that they don't see in a polymer frame i think that's part of it too there's a there are people who i i don't care for polymer frame guns i just don't care for them really don't even care for aluminum framed guns but i've got a few of those but um you know so anyway it's uh, people see value in metal frames the question i have is what kind of engineering when you're substituting materials how does that change the engineering do things need to be as thick as they were do they need to be designed the way they were how does changing material affect the design or are they just simply saying this was polymer it is now aluminum and we're good to go e either way it's it, it's probably okay um but it'll be interesting to see if this trend continues my gut feeling my gut feeling is even though polymer frame pistols are are fine for their intended purposes that you will see more of this happen simply because it's new and different and there's always people who want something new and a little bit different and they can say yeah well mine's better than yours because i got the steel frame version <laughs> you know there's there's just going to be that so it'll be interesting to see how that how that all transpires okay next thing is there's been a lot of buzz the french fr2 sniper rifles um you've seen those they've been on forgotten weapons and the desert brutality and and, and all these things um it is essentially uh, it's it's really cool it's it's a french army sniper rifle i don't know if it's still current or not um you know there's it's hard to say what is current and what is not in almost any country's armed forces nowadays everybody's upgrading so quickly but they're not exactly kicking away or throwing away the older equipment sometimes it's being passed on to reserve type units and and then gradually cycles out of the system much the same way that the um 1911 you know to to replace the 1911 um they adopted the beretta in 84 and i think it was like 95 before the uh, last of the 1911s were, were turned in so it took you know 10 years you could say 10 years to to uh, basically get you know the older ones cycled out and the newer newer ones completely fielded um 
and it may be the same thing with these FR2 rifles. It's 7.62 NATO. Um, appears to be a very nice rifle in many ways. Um, their company, it wasn't Inner Arms, I forget who it is, Navy Arms, I guess. They um, they brought in a bunch of like 30 of these. And of course, they've, they've been selling, you know, pretty pretty well. The, uh, the price on them is like 7K. And 7K is pretty much takes out everybody but collectors. You know, if you're a collector, you'll buy one. If, if no one's going to buy these to use them in any practical sense, simply because there's, I'm sure that when the part, when <laughs> there's no spare parts for these things. Um, not that a bolt action rifle usually requires a lot, but um, there's no spare parts. They, they are what they are. And by that's a high enough price tag so that, you know, the casual shooters and even people who would like to have one, you know, unless you're unless you're pretty, uh, pretty well off, that's that's a, a significant amount of money to spend on something. Um, so it's a it's a very unique kind of gun. It's it's probably, you know, best as a collector gun. Um, the interesting part about it is, is that. Uh, you know, when you're buying it, even though you pay seven thousand dollars, not no two. I guarantee no two of those rifles are going to be exactly the same as far as finish, wear, bore condition, bore wear. Um, I guarantee that they've got some that are more nicked up than others. They have some that are probably like spanking brand new and then they have some that look like they've been heavily used guarantee it um, so that would discourage someone like me from hey you know here's my credit card number for seven thousand bucks and <laughs> just uh, pick one off the rack and send it to me something like that I would almost want to say I'm gonna be there Tuesday and uh, I'm gonna have seven thousand on me and uh, I'm gonna pick the gun I want. That would that would kind of be the way I would want to do that. Um, but anyway, there's a lot of buzz about those. Apparently, there's even another small batch coming in. So anybody who wants one, you know, now is the time to strike because the the cost will go up. They'll be at Rock Island auction and all these other places um, in a few years, and they'll they'll want money for it. They'll want real money. Um, do I think it is a good buy? And the answer, the answer is beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Um, I do not, I am not particularly fond of French long guns. I'm more fond of their pistols. And friend of the podcast who's, who's, has expertise in, in these things, um, he generously allowed me to fire some of his his trove of 32 French long ammunition out of um, his 1935 pistol. He has both versions, and you know it was a very impressive per, uh, pistol. It's it's not a 32 ACP. It's it, it turned out to be a dead end in military development, but it was a very very interesting idea of kind of a higher velocity um, 30 caliber pistol round, which I I thought was quite interesting. Uh, in a very nice, convenient, 
attractive package both both versions are they're they're somewhat different but they're both both nice uh one of them looking like a little miniature uh sig p210 uh, sig p210 was actually based on it so those are those are nice guns i like i like those uh french long rifles uh i've never i never liked i never disliked um i think they're interesting um i've seen them shoot very well um and the fr2 is just a a sniperized version of the Moz 36 action i do believe so that's a, it's it's cool i mean it's 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 very cool if you want something really unusual and something you won't see on the street every day that that's going to be it but um and and you know compared to a lot of things that it's contemporary with uh, I don't know what an 03A3, genuine 03A3 goes for these days, but I'm assuming it's about 5,000. Um, and this would certainly be a much more capable rifle than that. Not that that matters, because people buy these things as, as collect. Nobody buys an 80-year-old sniper rifle because it's <laughs> they want to go out and snipe with it today. <laughs> so I would... Uh, uh, I would say that you know it, it depends on what your collector thing is. I I do like, and and of course it's become it's become very fashionable now. But you know the World War II stuff is all great and interesting and and fascinating and that period of history, all that all those tie-ins are just fantastic. But the post-war stuff is really fascinating to me. Also, I've always thought FALs are very cool, and I mean. You know, you pick up an FNFAL and it feels cool, it looks cool, it is cool. And kind of the same way with some of the Kalashnikovs and, and uh, definitely the retro ARs are the same, same sort of way. I really, really enjoy that post-war era, uh, Cold War era, they, they kind of call it in, in uh, some, some venues. I really enjoy those weapons. Those are really great. They, they, a friend of the podcast and I, to mention him again... Um, we both have uh, G3 clones with the original German uh, soap sights on them, and what a fun, what a fun rifle that is! It's really awesome. So to to get back to the deal, the the French guns are are interesting, uh, maybe not as interesting as some others to some people, but definitely there. To to me, I would never shell out seven thousand for that because I have a little bit different tastes so um, however if if Santa Claus brought one down the chimney and left it under the Christmas tree I would probably be very very happy but it's not what I would spend 7000 on I'd probably go in another direction uh, with all that so the FR2 is out there uh, if you want one I'd buy it now like I tell people you you buy them now from the importer and you will they will never lose money and especially this rifle this is not going to be something that oh gee a year from now they're going to import seven or eight thousand of um it's just not going to happen they didn't make that many I think they made maybe 2,500 3,000 total some of those broke some of those are still in stock some of those are given to foreign countries some police departments in france probably have some so the amount that are available that can be brought here are very very small so it will have a very interesting it will always be a rare and scarce gun it will always be that 
and rare and scarce guns generally command um, good money and they genu genuinely um, appreciate above the cost of inflation and things which if uh, old Joe at the shady rest keeps uh, keeps up with what he's doing we, we will see some inflation and that's another another issue uh, you know if you want it I would spring now because prices are just gonna go up just due to inflation and face it wages never keep the only thing that never keeps up with inflation are wages so you will be spending a bigger percentage of your take-home loot then if you just you know I would just buy it now that's that's the best advice I can give you okay let's get to oh another interesting another interesting thing uh, cast bullets and I'm sure everybody's tired of me boring you with the tales of cast bullets but I want to pass on information because and I want to tell you kind of about the journey I went on with these each podcast I want to leave some a tidbit out there for for people who are going down the same the same road um, you know factory ammo just isn't what it used to be it's not nearly available I had a friend email me saying hey I just got my father's 3030 his father is aged and said hey why don't you keep this now and he goes my kids and I want to go out and shoot it but I can't find ammo anywhere can you help so I gave him some suggestions now since World War II, this kind of a problem is unheard of in the United States. Used to be you could go down any five and dime. They, remember the old five and dime, five and ten cent stores or Western Auto or any place that kind of sold outdoor stuff. You could walk in and buying th at the, the one caliber you know they would have would be 30-30. They'd have 30-30, 30-06, and probably 38 special handgun ammunition. But they would have 30-30. It would be everywhere. Now you got to hunt for it. You got to hunt for it. This is the first time in forever this has happened. And uh, it's not getting, it's getting better, but it could take a while before it ever gets back to 2019, you know. And uh, I notice that sales are slowing down a little bit. People are kind of like saying, I don't think I'm going to spend $600 for a case of 9mm. There's a sort of backing off a little bit now you see some of those those prices coming down somewhat but they got a way to go <laughs> they got a way to go before it's you know game on affordable again so casting bullets and reloading is now a lot more important than it ever has been it has never been more important than it is now so one of the things i want to pass on and this had to do with 3030 is you know i use lee molds because they're inexpensive they're in the weights I want and you know they're usually very decent designs I mean I've said before if they would let me into their mold design warehouse for about 10 minutes I could update their line in 10 minutes they'd have some great stuff coming out but be that as it may um, you know they're 30 caliber bullets they're 309, 150, 180, 200. Those are, they're very old designs. And, uh, 
you've got to really watch them because they don't want to load into the chambers of some lever action rifles remember last time i said the most critical dimension is making sure you don't exceed the overall length well now sometimes you have to put them in even shorter so you can get them into these tighter chambered lever action rifles because frankly these are very old bullet designs and if you look at some of the newer bullet designs you can see how they've been optimized so that they they will feed so if your if your gun won't close you might have to just set your bullet deeper into the case it's usually not a big deal especially with 150 grainers it's not a big deal but it's a lot deeper than you would normally think it was so uh, just wanted to pass that along that the uh, um, you know everything isn't quite perfect and uh, you know it's a good it's a good reason there are, there are other companies that make aluminum molds but no one makes them as cost effectively as Lee does they're the rest of them are I don't want to say semi custom but I guess they are a couple of there's one company I can't recall the name but they you can buy an iron brasser or uh, aluminum I thought that was pretty pretty cool they're also I don't know if, if, if you're on Facebook and and you know social media and once they kind of get your your profile that you're interested in in shooting things you know shooting industry and and shooting accessories um, there's a company in Russia that makes these very strange molds that are um, I think you can actually tailor the size of your bullet and, and things. I've never had the courage to buy one, but um, I'm thinking about it. I haven't seen them advertised for, for a couple of months, but uh, I think I'm going to uh, look at that again. I might buy one of those just to try it out and experiment with it because it looks fascinating. It looks like a more modern rendition of a mold and, uh, you know, with some modern engineering applied to it so i'm definitely looking at and they did a lot of shotgun um, slug things so i don't know what their selection for regular bullets is because you know the gun the gun laws in russia are, are probably completely alien to us i think shotguns are okay um center fire rifles and, and handguns are not okay maybe rim fire is okay so uh, i'm sure they they're tailored to their domestic market so i don't know how much variety they have in their molds all right now we come to my favorite part of the podcast which is questions and answers and the first question came to me because i listened to a podcast uh, i think it was this week in guns or something where they were kind of dogging on revolvers and so the, a couple days later i got cornered and asked by a, a friend you know, hey, you know, I heard this podcast and are revolvers obsolete? They basically said revolvers are done and they're obsolete. And so do you think that? And and of course I, I tell them no. And anyone who knows me would know that I do not think that. But to address what they were saying um, in, in a structured way, and I'm not criticizing them. They think whatever they like, but to kind of put some thoughts together, Number one, all revolvers are based on 19th century engineering. Doesn't matter if it's a GP100 or the new Kimber revolvers 
or a cap and ball cold. I mean, the principles are all, it's spring, it's a lever, as a hand, the hammer's kind of a lever, you know, that whole kind of, I don't even call it a clockwork mechanism, but the little, the whole mechanism inside which spins a cylinder. Well, that's all 19th century engineering and it's springs, it's levers, and it's all those good things. And it's been modernized and that's what that particular show did not address. When you're talking about how creaky and quote unreliable revolvers are, um, to talk about Webley's is like talking about a Model T or a Model A. You certainly would not choose one to go into the Indianapolis 500, even though it has similarities to the cars that are in the Indy 500. They got four wheels, they got a steering wheel, they got a place for the driver to sit, you know. I mean, it, it does have similarities, but the level of technology, manufacturing, and intended purpose, and all those things were, were completely different. So, com so talking about revolvers and talking about, um, you know, and, and using the examples of how bad revolvers are is your Webley is this or that is ridiculous because the Webley is not a modern revolver. It's a hundred years out of date. Um, and so it's, it would be like if you wanted to dog on auto pistols and you're using the Mauser C96 as the example of how bad auto pistols are. Um, so, you know, you don't, you don't do that. You know, you don't talk about the, you know, the Borch hearts and the C96s are not representative of the modern semi-automatic pistols. Neither are Webley's or Colt 1901s or Peacemakers. Uh, you know, so it's, you're talking about, you, you can be really talking deceptively if you use a particularly obsolete or bad example as the the example of the modern the modern thing so no revolvers are not they do have limited ammunition they were designed for a different purpose they were not designed for multiple target and when I mean multiple target I mean like 10 or 12 target engagements they just weren't you know they were basically done for designed for two and three uh, target engagements. That's how I look at it anyway. I mean, um, if you can reload it real fast, which, you know, one of the things that kind of leaves you when you get that rush of adrenaline is fine motor skills. So reloading a revolver under stress can be, you know, can be pretty hard. The, the best, the absolute best system for reloading a revolver were the full moon clips which you know are about 40 years old and before that it was the half moon clips I mean you can pop those babies right in there in fact way back in the day and you might still be able to find pictures of these um, as a way to load a revolver faster they actually had these conical they, they looked like you know there were cones uh, the bullet that came out of the case was it was just a cone and then it had, you know, the regular back end of the bullet that you wouldn't see because it's inside the case. And uh, those were designed so you could just pop them in. And uh, 
they didn't have to exactly align with the chamber they were kind of self-aligning so they would just bounce in there um, very interesting haven't seen that in a long long time so it, it would be um, be pretty fascinating um, they almost they actually came to a point so they weren't like a semi wad cutter like you know the old 200 grain Hensley and Gibbs that was a great that that was a great bullet for uh, it, it essentially did the same function if you put it in a full moon clip and put it in a 625 or a um, 1917 style revolver um, it would effectively do the same thing but these were revolver rounds I remember seeing them in 357 and I think they weighed like 140 grains yeah I think they were 140 grains so anyway those are those are there but it's it's not easy to reload a revolver um, the guys who are really good at it uh, it's still it's still a real challenge but when it comes to a lot of other things revolvers have some great attributes which we've talked about before so I just wanted to say that if you're going to compare something use the most and say that a certain class of firearm is, is obsolete you might want to use the most advanced or the newest form of that and, and build your argument on that as opposed to something that's you know a hundred years old Okay, here's another one that came from a friend of mine who listened to a different podcast. And their question was, do you hate any calibers? And I, I think all the 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 answer that, that kind of came out was one guy hated 6.5 Creedmoor. I hate it. And I'm like, well, okay, I, first of all, I don't... When somebody asked me, do you have any calibers you hate? And I said, no, I don't. I mean, they're all designed at different points in time to do different things so I don't I don't hate any of them I don't I can't think of one that I it's like there are a lot that I don't use because they're specifically for hunting or for some other some other reason or I find that there's another caliber I prefer I there's a reason that myself and everybody else that I know nobody uses 38 short Colt as a defensive pistol cartridge you know nobody nobody does that you know <laughs> so there, there's some that I prefer over others does that mean I hate the 38 short Colt no I, I don't hate it uh, the the hate for the 6.5 Creedmoor I, I don't really understand that either the the theory behind it was it was a great target it's a good target round but not a good hunting round I think that's just all boulder dash and here's why um a lot of hunting guys who use guns as tools as we talked about way early in the podcast um you know they're not as caliber finicky many of them maybe some are but but most the most i met really aren't that caliber finicky um they'll come up and say yeah i use a 270 winchester or i use you know i've I know people who use 6.5 Creed Moors as hunting rifles. And it's like, it's not that big of a deal. They're not saying, well, this is better than anything else. They're saying, I use this because it works. They're not saying other things won't work, but maybe they want a rifle that's a little lighter weight, less recoiling, flatter trajectory. Um, to anybody who hates 6.5 Creed Moor, I can say, well, you may hate it, but US SOCOM likes it. And they're building, you know, sniper rifles with it because they found it's excellent for that. So a rifle that's excellent for sniping is probably, that caliber probably has some good attributes for hunting. 
and I think they're even developing some light machine guns for it. So it'll be interesting to see where all that goes. But you know, the, a lot of people who do shooting uh, really like the 6.5 Creedmoor. So that's what I say. I mean, I was never a, a fan or an opponent of it till I got my hands on one, and now I'm saying I'm very, very impressed. I like it very much. Um, I'm not saying it's the greatest cartridge ever because no cartridge is. It, but for my intended purposes, I've found a niche where it fits for me just exactly right. So, no, there are no calibers I hate. And in fact, I find kind of the weirder and more obscure they are, the kind of the more interesting they are. Okay, here is another one. And this is... these. This happens. Okay. My Mauser Red 9, meaning a Mauser 1896, you know, broom handle Mauser. Red 9 means somewhere along the line it has it is now a nine millimeter and there's a couple different ways that happens does not shoot well it's reliable but inaccurate and does not shoot tight groups okay my experience with the broom handle mauser is that number one it shoots better on the stock you know the detachable buttstock thingy that usually doubles as a holster um, it shoots better when it's attached to that and you're using it like a like a braced pistol really because it's not long enough to be a really good stock so it's kind of like shooting it with a pistol brace it shoots better that way uh, the next thing is that I don't know about genuine Mauser Red there's two types of Mauser Red 9's there's genuine ones and there's Faco ones Probably, if you had a hundred of them in front of you, my guess would be that 90 of that 100 would be FACO. And they did this when a lot of guns were imported, for, the surplus guns were imported from China in the 90s, a lot of broom handles, in various conditions. Mostly bad, mostly very bad. So when they had a shot out bore, uh, there were enterprising gunsmiths who would re-bore them to 9mm. Okay? The, and that seemed to be a good, a good idea. You know, it's like, it's, it's, it's like the old thing. It was a good idea at the time. Well, it wasn't, but it was an idea that people liked because 9mm ammunition was, even back then, was plentiful and comparatively inexpensive. You could buy it off the shelf anywhere. 7.63 Mauser was hard to find. And most people didn't trust. If you were smart, you didn't trust any of the surplus because it was probably Takarev ammunition, which is not good long-term for a Mauser. So the deal was they they reboard it to 9mm. Okay, the problem with that was the barrels were so thin that the accuracy went out the window. I think another reason accuracy went out the window was I'm not really sure the twist rates, you know, when you have a lot of people doing the same thing, (laughs) for them to do it all in the same way is sometimes impossible. So there were things, there were even a couple of companies that were reconditioning these and they would rechamber them to 9mm and they would refinish them, made them look 
comparatively nice and they would say hey here you go this is the you know this is the nine millimeter and they even put the newly made faco red nine grips on them and and all that uh the ones i've seen have not shot well and you rarely see them anymore i mean you rarely see them anymore um, because I think most people buy them. They think they look cool, which they do. They're neat collector's items, which they are, but they don't shoot that great. So the fact of the matter is the only alternative to you is have your gun relined to the original 7.63 Mauser, have them put a barrel liner in it, and you know re redo the chamber, and I think you will be much, much happier. You will have a gun that you can actually shoot and will actually shoot well. And so, you know, that's, that's the advice I would give. I would not, under any circumstances, uh, try to use... I wouldn't even manipulate nine millimeter loads in that. I, I, I just don't like. I don't like caliber conversions to begin with. <laughs> I don't really like them because the gun. All of a sudden, now you have a gun that was designed for one set of parameters. Now using another, especially in the semi-automatic mode. I mean. Uh, uh, yeah, there's and there's stories and stories upon that. Um, you know, we talk about the French 4956s, that Century Arms, who, who they have to be using. It has to be like some Planet of the Apes scenario where they're using monkey labor to work on their guns because the monkey labor would take the barrel off, rechamber, set it back a thread and rechamber it to 7.62 NATO. And uh, that was considered a very, very poor conversion. Some, some people claim they run well, some people claim they don't run well. So, you know, take your, take your choice. But that was, that was a, a thing where one cartridge was substituted for another and you know it didn't work out so well in the end uh the next thing the um you know i do have one pistol it's a Husqvarna 1907 kind of a a bigger version of a Colt 1903 pocket hammerless except it could never unless you have a really big huge pocket it'll never fit in there those were in 9mm browning long and the Swedish military rechambered them to 380 um, because they had to use them for some reason or another. And 9mm Browning Long had been long obsolete. So they, they redid it. And that's, that is actually a reasonable conversion, but it's still, it still doesn't, first of all, it's like the world's biggest 380 pistol, I think. It might hold a record. It might hold a record and be the world's longest and largest 380 pistol. And, uh, you know, it, it fits in and functions in the magazines, but you can tell the magazines were for another caliber. So, 
Yeah, cartridge conversions in existing arms usually don't work out so well. So I would um, I would have it restored back to its original, have the gun gone over by a competent gunsmith and make sure that all the uh, little bits and pieces, because it is an unusual design, are there and you'll probably be a whole lot happier. Not that it will ever be a match grade gun because frankly when they designed it they didn't really know nobody knew what an automatic pistol should look like so you got the bore chart you got the broom handle mauser and it wasn't until you know five or six years later you started getting things that look more like the pistols we're used to today so that's what i would tell you with your uh your broom handle it is it is not not going if it was converted from nine mil to, from seven six three to nine millimeter yeah they, you you've got a problem on your hands there okay and here is our last question can I slug the bore on my p14 for sizing cast bullets the answer is yes you can uh, however with any Enfield that's funny because that, that kind of goes back to the email I received earlier too. Uh, any Enfield 303 is going to have five grooves, which means you can't get a direct a groove on groove, land on land measurement. And there's some algebra or trigonomic trigonomic calculation that you have to perform with your measurements so you, yes you can slug it then you have to take some kind of complicated measurements and then plug them into a mathematic formula and get your bore diameter <laughs> frankly what I would do since my math skills are not uh, they're not going to put anybody on the moon or anything so what I would say is you know notionally that's supposed to be a 312 bore given that most Enfields are now at least 80 years old and your P14 is 104 105 years old I think you can safely say that your P14 is probably a little oversized so I would go with a 313 cast bullet and if that doesn't shoot any better than then if that does not improve things I would go to actually a 314 cast bullet and um, I think you'll be happier with those results the the other thing I would do is make sure that if you do fire you know the factory type ammunition is you stay as close to the original loading as you can which is the 174 grain FMJ and uh, you know you'll you'll get what you get uh, they were never designed to be tack drivers. Um, they have very generous chambers, so they can the Enfield much more than the P14. But you know they were designed so that they could be used in the mud in the trenches, and they, the the cartridges still go off. They did not have three, four, five, and six hundred yard precision shooting in mind. So uh, that's basically the answer I have on that.
And with that comes to a close of this edition of Old School Guns. Podcast tells you like it is. Send any comments to kbmakel at aol.com. kbmakel at aol.com. And until next time, which will probably be after the holidays, this is Old School Guns, out. <laughs>